secret documents and political tensions. A redacted copy of the FBI search affidavit for former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home is unsealed. It reveals new details about his alleged mishandling of classified information. Meanwhile, I made a commitment that we provide student debt relief, and I'm honoring that commitment today. President Biden forgives some student loan debt for millions of Americans. Many welcome the news. I'm sure the people who will benefit from it will love it. The question is, is it fair to everyone else? But Republicans and some Democrats criticize the move. Plus, the MAGA Republicans don't just threaten our personal rights and economic security. They're a threat to our very democracy. The primary season winds down, and the fight to win control of Congress intensifies next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. It was a busy week and a newsy, newsy Friday afternoon. Today, following a judge's order, a redacted copy of the FBI affidavit used to justify the search of former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home was publicly released. The document contained about 20 pages of full redactions, but it also revealed that in January, Trump turned over to the National Archives 184 documents with different levels of classification. They included 92 documents marked as secret and 25 documents marked as top secret. The affidavit said, quote, there is also probable cause to believe that evidence of obstruction will be found at the premises. The document also said the Justice Department was concerned that, quote, premature disclosure of the affidavit may, quote, have a significant and negative impact on the continuing investigation and may severely jeopardize its effectiveness by allowing criminal parties an opportunity to flee or destroy evidence. That's all, of course, really, really important information. Joining me to discuss this and more, Scott McFarland, congressional correspondent for CBS News. Eva McKend, national politics reporter for CNN. And joining me here in studio, Michael Shear, White House correspondent for The New York Times, and Ali Vitale, NBC News Capitol Hill correspondent and the author of the new book, Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House Yet. So thank you all for being here. Scott, I got to start with you. We saw this redacted copy of the affidavit. Of course, everyone in Washington and around the country was looking at it. What sticks out most to you? What's most important here? Every speck of this, every ounce of this is unprecedented from soup to nuts. I mean, first of all, page 30 of this 38-page affidavit says something we've never seen before, that the FBI argued there was, quote, fruits of crime potentially at the residence of a former U.S. president. It didn't preclude the possibility there are more items or more people the FBI would pursue. And just the fact that we see an affidavit for a search warrant without a corresponding civil or criminal case is itself unique. Usually when we look for court cases, we go looking for the affidavit that has the point blank, plain spoken explanation story behind the case. There is no case here. So it's difficult, Yamish, to get our bearings around this moment. Uh, it also said this affidavit that there could possibly be cause to believe that there might be obstruction um, found on the premises there. I wonder what you make of the significance of that. And you're talking, of course, about the fact that it's unprecedented that we're looking for crimes, but specifically this use of, of evidence of obstruction. I'm really interested in your thoughts. 
Yeah, because we keep hearing the word obstruction in the federal cases corresponding to January 6th, and we've gotten a sense, a measure of how significant that is. That is a federal crime. It has a lot of weight, and we've learned about that ahead of the search at Mar-a-Lago. But here's something else. In between the redactions, Yamish, and there were many redactions, there was a granularity to what the federal agents were saying in the affidavit, that there were certain spaces on this sprawling Mar-a-Lago campus that were of interest. The 45 office, the 45th president's office at Mar-a-Lago, the storage spaces. And what the affidavit says is that those spaces are not authorized to hold classified information. And the affidavit was emphatic. There was secretive classified information on the grounds, according to the federal agents. And Michael, we're talking about the secret classified information. We said it at the top, 25 documents marked top secret. Um, I wonder what's the significance of this to you, especially because in a lot of these um, notes in the affidavit you have, they say that there were handwritten notes from former President Trump. So we, of course, covered Trump together. We know how he operates. So what does this tell you? What's the significance? Well, I think there's a couple of, significant, uh, couple of ways that it's significant. One is it raises the question of why the former president didn't just uh, deal with this as soon as the... Uh, the National Archives and the federal officials started inquiring. I mean, it's really hard to understand. And as Scott said, it's, it's you know, there's so much redacted that I'm not sure the affidavit actually answers questions. I think it maybe raises more questions. But there's, you know, it, it, if, if President Trump had seen these documents before, knew what they were, had handwriting on them, there was a reason he wanted them and a reason why he didn't simply say, oh, oops, made a mistake, here are the documents back. And clearly he didn't because they found more when they went in after this affidavit was filed. They went in and they found more, uh, more information. And I think ultimately over the course of the next weeks, months, years, however long this goes, that's the question I'm going to be looking for is why did he want these and why didn't he give them back? And Allie, there are so many questions, as Michael is really alluding to here. One sentence that I kept reading over and over again is that the FBI has not identified all potential criminal Confederates nor located all evidence related to this investigation. That means in my ears, in my eyes, that there could be more to this story, more people. What do you make? That's a heck of a tease, right? right? That's a lot of information that we already are looking at, the fact that there are hundreds of documents here that were secret classified documents that were not being stored in the correct fashion. The fact that they're not sure that they've gotten them all, that's a stunning thing to think about, too, here as we go forward. I think what's also interesting is the fact that DOJ clearly knew who they were dealing with here, right? You guys talk about knowing the way that the former president operated in terms of writing on papers. It's also clear that they knew that he was someone who could try, if they were not secretive about this, to punch back first and preempt what the DOJ was trying to do. I thought that was a striking passage, not only because they know who he's dealing with, but also because they're clearly talking to multiple people inside Trump's orbit, so much so that they knew exactly where to look for all of these documents. And I think that's a thread that we're going to tug on in the coming weeks and months, too. And Ali really, in some ways, Eva, she wrote the intro to my next question. It's Trump punching back. So. President Trump again lashed out at the FBI and the DOJ. We want to put it up for people because he made this graphic where he released a statement that said um, they missed a page showing all black lines. And it says, if it's hard for you to read, make America great again through all of those redactions. But I also want to put up something else for people. An NBC News poll showing that Trump's hold over the GOP has strengthened since the FBI search. According to NBC News, since May, the number of Republicans who identify with Trump more than the GOP has risen seven percent. So, Eva, you've been out there in, in the country. What do you make of all the politics of this? 
Well, I've been in Pennsylvania and Georgia, Erie, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, and Atlanta in the last couple of weeks. And what has really surprised me when I speak to Democratic voters is that they very much are concerned about the former president and the future and the health of our democracy. I think sometimes here in Washington, we are concerned that we're having a conversation that doesn't mirror what's actually happening in the country. Well, it is. They are concerned. And I think what we're going to see is Democrats really seize on this and say, look, the former president has no regard for our sacred institutions. That is the argument that they are going to make based on this search alone, even though the former president hasn't been charged. And I very much think this will continue to be a factor as we talk about November. And Eva's talking about this idea uh, that Democrats are sort of crafting their messaging. Um, Michael, President Biden, though, he said that he would let the, GO, the, the DOJ determine whether national security was compromised. But today on the line, you could see President Biden in some ways wanting to say something. Someone said to him, you know, what do you make of former President Trump, um, his handling of documents? And he just said, come on. Um, <laughs> what's the president's thinking here? Well, look, I mean, there's such great irony in all of this, right? The, 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 the former President Donald Trump is, is being assailed and, and you know, potentially uh, having kind of electoral damage based on handling of classified information after he spent, yeah. you know, so many months assailing uh, Hillary Clinton for uh, emails and Less. mishandling documents. I mean, you know, there's some, some great irony here, and I think Joe Biden would love nothing more than to sort of jump in with both feet. And, and look, he will, the Hatch Act, which is the law that prevents, you know, sort of political activities by the White House, doesn't apply to the president himself. And so the, I, I think you will see, you know, over the course of the next, you know, couple of months before the midterm elections, I think you will see him get, he was already more aggressive at a, at a speech yesterday, and I think he'll get more aggressive and more pointed. And I think in some ways, what Democrats are hoping is that is that the the former president's troubles in Mar-a-Lago writ large um, is going to be that thing that motivates, you know, uh, uh, people and the Democrats and, and Joe Biden can seize on. And Scott, let's talk about troubles. Um, we alluded to it in your in your answers. Um, there are a lot of unanswered there are a lot of unanswered questions. What do you think are the most important of those unanswered questions? What is going on next? Well, ultimately. Whether or not there's a civil or criminal case filed, there's no certainty one will be. There's going to be this appetite from the public as to what are these things that are in potentially a storage space at a private resort in Florida? What was compromised? And that's why we hear the leaders of the House and Senate Intelligence Committee saying they'd like a briefing. What might have been compromised with U.S. intelligence? You know, a confidential briefing in a secured location in the U.S. Capitol where you're authorized to show and disclose secretive and classified information. Senator Mark Warner, who chairs the Senate Intelligence Committee, the senator from Virginia, issued a statement today reiterating his interest in getting briefed on this, because if something's been compromised, the U.S. Congress needs to know about it because they, too, have oversight over U.S. intelligence and the classification of records. And Ali, jump in here. You're running the halls of Congress <laughs> along with Scott. What do you make of what he's saying? Yeah, this is one of those weeks where I really wish they were here still, because I would love to be able to ask these lawmakers in real time, 
many of them asking, we want to see what's in the affidavit. When I was in Alaska just two weeks ago at this point, I asked Senator Lisa Murkowski what she thought about this. She said she wants to see what's in here, I think in large part because the Republicans whose knee-jerk reaction was not to immediately defend Trump want to see what they're actually dealing with here. And I think that the Senate reaction has, of course, been different from the House reaction. I think McCarthy's response immediately after the search at Mar-a-Lago sort of set it all for what we're going to hear from House Republicans on this, which is they are going to vehemently defend Trump right now. And then in the longer term, if they retake the House, they're going to do all of the investigations around this and try to muddy the waters as much as possible, despite the fact that DOJ clearly has been methodological and careful in taking these unprecedented steps to actually investigate and search the home of a former president. And Eva, going back to you, when you think about sort of the politics and how this is playing out, you mentioned being in Georgia and Pennsylvania. I wonder when you hear Scott and Allie talking about sort of oversight of this, where this goes next, what's on your mind? Well, I just think we'll have to see how this continues to play out. I think I wonder if some of the Republicans who initially reflexively were very supportive of the former president, very sympathetic, if they sort of maybe have regrets about that response. And I do wonder if we're going to see any Republicans shift their strategy as it gets closer to November and sort of distance themselves from the former president. Does this entire Mar-a-Lago episode become too politically toxic? Uh, and talking about November is exactly where we're going next. Of course, um, as the midterms get closer, we've seen President Biden and the White House. They're turning up the heat on their criticisms of the GOP. In a fiery speech Thursday, President Biden accused Republicans allied with former President Trump of turning toward, quote, semi-fascism and of, quote, being a threat to democracy. This all comes after President Biden made some other big news this week. On Wednesday, he announced the federal government would cancel up to $20,000 of federal student loans for millions of Americans. But Republicans, and I will say even some Democrats, were quick to criticize this plan. So I want to first go to you, Michael. You think about sort of President Biden using fascism, semi-fascism. That's a big deal. What's his thinking here, and what's the White House strategy? So the White House has a kind of two-pronged strategy for the next several months for the elections. One is to really uh, spend a lot of time touting their accomplishments, right? There was, if you, if you think back to March and April of this year, there was, it was really doom and gloom for Democrats. They felt like they hadn't accomplished much of, their, of the president's agenda. There was this flurry of activity this summer. Uh, the student loans that was just mentioned, the uh, uh, legislation to do climate change and drug prices, gas prices are down, things are kind of looking up a little bit. So one half of the strategy is that, touting all of that progress. The other half is really attacking Republicans and drawing that contrast and saying to voters, look, you have a choice. You're, it's not just a referendum on Joe Biden and what you might think of the Democratic rule in Washington. It is if you don't want this, look what's out there. And, that, and, and, they'll, and, and this phrase, ultra MAGA, they're trying to link all Republicans to Donald Trump and to say that that agenda is really, really extreme. And whether or not you're entirely satisfied with Joe Biden, that's the alternative. That's their, that's their sort of twin strategy for the next few months. Yeah. And as part of that twin strategy, they're trying to get stuff done that they can actually hold up. So, of course, we, we have talked about student loans. Um, this was a promise, part of a promise that candidate Biden made on the campaign trail. What's your sense of why this happened right now? And might we see all student loan debt canceled? 
I think that's highly unlikely. The president really um, was uh, kind of pushed in during the campaign by his more liberal rivals uh, when he was running against Senators Warren and uh, Sanders. He was pushed to do something on student loans. I think he, uh, over the last 18 months, there's been a lot of delay because he still was very uncomfortable about the idea. I mean, it, it is there. there is some level of unfairness that I think even the Democrats would acknowledge. You know, you're picking and choosing groups. Who's going to get a benefit? It. And, you know, some people are and some people aren't. He finally came around to it. Yeah. But I do think that it's it, that this is sort of the, the limit. I mean, I don't know that he'll be able to be pushed much further. And, Ali, you're, you're shaking your head. Of course, there's a nodding your head, I should say. Yeah. Um, President Biden, when this, when this announcement was made, you had some progressive Democrats who were championing it. You had some who also said it's not going far, far enough. The, the president of the NAACP saying that he should go even farther because this affects African-Americans in a particular way. But you also have some moderate Democrats, right, who are saying this could hurt inflation and make it even worse. What's your reporting, say? Well, because I think that for moderate Democrats who we're hearing from, people in tough Senate contests, like Senator or wannabe Senator Tim Ryan, who's running in Ohio, and then Senator Catherine Cortez Master, who's playing defense in Nevada, they're speaking out against this decision from President Biden. And then we're also hearing from frontline Democrats on the House side of this who are saying, speaking to that unfairness that you're talking about there. But on the other side of this is the reality that progressives have been talking about for a long time, that this helps helps people not be saddled with this debt for the entirety of their lives. And this is impacting millions of Americans. Some of them are not necessarily even Americans who are working with college degrees right now. I think that's part of the conversation that might be being left out, is that some of these folks had to drop out of college for whatever reason and are not getting the high-earning benefits of having that education behind them, but still having to pay that student loan debt. So I think that's a piece of this conversation, too. I think it's a moment for Biden where he can say it's a promise made and a promise kept, although it's a promise that doesn't make him the most popular person with everyone because progressives still want more and moderates don't want this to happen at all. I will say Republicans who I've spoken to, I think feel like this is a moment for them to have an inroad for the conversation that they want to have in the midterms, which is all about the economy, all about inflation. This provides them an avenue to do that, even as Democrats would rather focus in the way that you're talking about on the ultra MAGA movement, tying Trump as the binary here, not making this just a referendum on Biden, but oh wait, Trump is back in the news cycle Again, let's remember what the 1v1 is, the Biden versus Trump of it. Yeah. That's clearly what the White House would like to campaign on, too. And, Scott, as, as Ali's talking about popularity, we should point out, according to Gallup, um, President Biden's job approval is hitting a record high right now. Um, it's, it's up. It's six percentage points to 44 percent, his highest in a year. We should note that that still means he's underwater in some ways. 53 percent of Americans are disapproving of his job performance. But how does that square with your reporting and what you're seeing and what we've been talking about? Well, we're going to get a real good sense of how politically popular Democrats think this student loan decision and order is, because we are less than 75 days till the midterm elections. And on behalf of my children and children everywhere, I ask rhetorically, where did the summer go? But we're getting there. <laughs> and this is a chance for candidates to articulate their message and make their home stretch arguments. Let's see next week if we see a bevy of new campaign ads from Democrats mentioning the student debt, student loan issue. Because I can tell you what we saw this past week, new abortion rights, women reproductive health rights ads from Democrats. They saw what happened Tuesday in upstate New York in the Hudson Valley, where a Democrat won the first real head-to-head -head Republican on Democrat battle for Congress since the Supreme Court ruling in June. And Democrats exceeded expectations, their expectations, I think Republicans' expectations too, 
And here come more ads about abortion rights after an election in which the Democrat made abortion rights his primary issue. Let's see if student debt becomes an issue in the next 75 days. And, and Eva, you've been out there on the campaign trail, as we've said. Um, how are people viewing student loans and this action by President Biden? Well, this is an issue that doesn't fall neatly along partisan lines. I think the argument that we've heard from Republicans is that this is uh, a, really a deal for the wealthy and that working class people in middle America are going to pay, be paying for the elites. But that really doesn't really pass muster because you have working class folks in middle America who are saddled with student loan debt, too. So I'm interested to see how this rolls out. I will say something that often happens is that when these different programs are targeted, and this one very much is, is that it takes a longer time to implement. So let's see if the federal government can actually uh, work with some effectiveness on this and when these loans are actually canceled. That will make all the difference. Is this actually going to work when it's all said and done? It's a, it's a good question and a big question. Um, Michael, the White House, going back to punching back, because, you know, it's clearly they have a week, they're having a week at the White House. The White House <laughs> social media team had a whole thread attacking by name a bunch of Republicans, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, for going after student loan forgiveness, but having received P forgiveness of their PPP loans. That, of course, was tied to the COVID loans. Right. What's going on at the White House? What is behind <laughs> they, this social media they, Somebody there ate their Wheaties is what happened. <laughs> I mean, this, <laughs> this was, uh, you know, the, if, if you if you watched the president, the official White House Twitter feed, it's not an exciting place to be. It's not TikTok here. It's pretty <laughs> boring usually. And yet they sort of came to life and, and were very aggressive in pushing back. Um, I, I think there's, you, you can can make a case that they were a little bit unfair in the comparison. The, the PPP loans, which were for small businesses and restaurants, were entirely designed to be forgiven. That was the whole idea, that the money was essentially a bridge while businesses um, uh, well, while businesses were, were going to get back on their feet because of, the pan because of the pandemic. And so the idea was you give them the money, but then you're going to ultimately forgive it. Uh, student loans obviously weren't designed that way. So there's a little bit of a, a kind of uh, uh, unfairness there. But look, it, it politically, I think it did exactly what the White House wanted to do, which is to like get people talking and to put some of these Republicans back on their heels um, um, because it, it is, you know, a little bit of a... You know, it, it, a punch in the nose, punch really. In the it's nose, it's right. a little bit of a no, punch in the is. nose. A punch in the nose. Um, Eva, I want to ask you about a man named Maxwell Frost. He's 25 years old, 25-year-old political organizer in Florida. If he he won his primary in Florida, um, if he goes to Congress, he would be the first member of Gen Z to go to Congress. I wanted to ask about him because as we're talking about the political sort of tensions, you have this new generation who's now younger than me going to Congress, which feels a little crazy. But also, you know, it, it shows that the Democrats have a bench that, that, that is willing to go to Congress. What are you hearing? What do you make of, of his win and what it says about the Democrats? Well, this is where the energy is in the Democratic Party with young progressives of color. That is where it is. And I think what I'm watching is, are the octogenarians in power going to support them or are they going to stand in the way? Uh, I think another space to watch were the primaries in New York, where that 
that very much was not the end result. Uh, one could argue that the progressives of color, the young progressives of color, were stifled in New York by the Democratic apparatus. So this, no doubt, I think, is where a lot of the enthusiasm is. But I'm not yet convinced that the Democrats in control of the party uh, like where this is headed, are willing to invest and really support that base. Uh, it's a good question. And last question, you and have 15 seconds left. Ali, what do you make of what, of what Eva's saying here? I mean, I look at the results on what happened on Tuesday, and I see a bad night for women. Nikki Freed not getting that gubernatorial nomination. It's kind of the same thing that we saw in 2018 when Gwen Graham lost there. And then, of course, Carolyn Maloney, the powerful chair of the Oversight Committee, losing to another powerful chair of the Judiciary Committee and Jerry Nadler. She made that race all about the idea that the old boys club is still in play. I think gender was a factor on Tuesday night as well. Yeah, a good point and an important point. So thanks to our panelists for joining us and for sharing your reporting. And don't forget to stick around for the Washington Week Extra. Ali Vitali stays to discuss her new book, Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House, dot, 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 yet. Find it on our website, Facebook, and YouTube. And before we go, don't forget to watch PBS News Weekend tomorrow for a report on this, this disturbing spike in gun violence ravaging Philadelphia this summer. That's Saturday on PBS. Thank you for joining us. Good night from Washington.